Um, my name is Jess. I would like to welcome you to today's talk, which is being hosted by the UWA Christian Union. Uh, it's really good to have you here, whether you're uh, religious or secular, whatever your beliefs are, whether you're curious or kind of confused about this whole topic. Uh, yeah, it's really great to have you here. I hope that this talk is really helpful for you um, and that you can get a lot out of it. Uh, so today we're hearing from Rory Shiner on the topic of why is there suffering if God is good? If there's a good God, why do bad things happen? Um, a question that I'm sure a lot of us have thought about before. I know I have. Uh, Rory, our speaker, is a pastor at a local church called Providence uh, where he spends a lot of time helping people understand who Jesus is. Uh, I googled him this morning and he studied an arts degree in English and Anthropology here at UWA and then he went to study uh, Theology at Moore College in Sydney. So, he's a UWA student. Um, so, if I can invite Rory up, I might ask you a few quick questions so we can get to know you a little better. So, Rory, I've already hinted, but what do you do with your time? Uh, so yeah, so uh, pastor at a church called Providence Church, which is in the uh, in the city or near the city uh, around uh, Lake Munger. Uh, I am a uh, father of four boys, so we've got four kids from twelve to eight, seven turning eight um, at home. I always worry when I'm on the phone or trying to fill in a form somewhere, and someone uh, they ask me the birthday or the age of the kids because I often don't know, and I worry that DCP will come and take them away. But. Uh, <laughs> They are. Anyway, there are four of them, and they are between those ages. Yes. Awesome. And it sounds like you've been in Perth for most of your life. Yeah, zero to um, zero to uh, ten in Albany, and oh. then eleven and twelve. Eight. This is my ages in Papua New Guinea, and then Perth, oh, wow. pretty much from twelve onwards, thirteen okay. onwards. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what do you love about Perth? Oh, I love Perth. I was just talking to someone about this yesterday. About uh, who was I talking to? Anyway, so much. Yeah, we all agreed that Perth was the best. Yeah, uh, <laughs> um, uh, I like the I like the winter. Like I like this time. I like the summer. I like the beach. Um, I like the kind of Tim Winton vibe of it all. Yeah, I like Perth. Awesome. Uh, and more of a serious question: uh, When was the first time that this topic of suffering maybe became real for you, or that question entered your head? Uh, it was a, it was actually a, a fairly uh, significant part of my own kind of coming to an adult faith in Jesus was thinking about that growing up in Papua New Guinea, which is not like a I don't know if anyone's lived in Papua New Guinea, so it's not like a grinding poverty situation, but it's definitely a massive inequality uh, situation, and that was a, a confronting circumstance uh, to grow up in. And it was actually uh, having that in the back of my mind of how does that work and is. Uh, what is it? The philosophical question and the kind of more uh, practical question of what, how does Christianity orient you toward uh, suffering and, and all that sort of thing um, was something that... And I happened to be in Africa in my year between school and uni uh, that I was meeting with African Christians in a township where I was living uh, that, um, that helped me to come to terms with, with that issue. Yeah. yeah. All right. Cool. Well, I might hand over to you. Uh, we are having a Q&A at the end, so if you've got any questions or you want to take notes during... Not a bad idea, and I've got to work out how to turn this off. Oh, that's not what I want. Oh, here we go. Yeah, that's good. Yep, go on. Excellent. Go on, go on. And 
can you hear me right now? Did you hear a single thing I said before when this was off? Okay, cool. Uh, and is that too loud? In fact, I think it is. Should I turn that down? Is that better? That feels loud to me, but is that okay for you? Okay, there we are. Uh, good to spend this time uh, with you today. So we're in the middle, or maybe towards the end of this series, thinking uh, about these big why questions. And with this topic, I think, I'm not trying to overclaim uh, for the talk, but I, I, I want to mount the claim that this is kind of the big one. Uh, that a lot of the questions that we have that are very real questions... Uh, for us uh, are questions that, in a sense, we bring to the Christian faith, whether you're coming from within the Christian faith or a secular or other religion person coming from the outside, if we're asking questions, what does the Bible say about feminism or what does it say about abortion or uh, what does it uh, say about you know contemporary economics or, or whatever, they're, uh, they're questions that you can bring to the Christian faith in good faith, they're questions that you can ask of the Bible and find answers. But in a sense, they are our questions uh, that we bring to the Bible. But I think the thing about this question, the topic of of suffering and, and why would a good God allow suffering, it's not just a question that we bring to the Bible and try to squeeze an answer out of. It, it in a very real sense, is what the Bible is about. Uh, from the first page to the last page, I think it's hard to think of a part of the Bible that isn't directly or indirectly dealing with the question uh, of God and suffering. Uh, The way we ask the question might be particular, we might think about that, but the question of evil and suffering and God isn't one of those things that you can come up to the Bible and say, gotcha, I bet you didn't think about this, as you might be able to do with science or feminism or something. Uh, On the contrary, it's something that the Bible itself is constantly putting before those uh, that read it. So that's what I want to think about this question that is so at the heart of of the Christian uh, story and the Christian faith. I think it's not only a question that comes out of the Bible, it's not only a question that the Bible itself asks, it's a question that I would be very surprised if everyone in this room hadn't already thought about to some extent and to some degree. Because the problem of suffering and evil is huge for any human being, whether you've encountered the Christian faith or not. Uh, the problem of suffering and evil is a, is a qualitative problem. That is, why is there such a thing? And it doesn't matter how much of such a thing there is, just the fact that it exists uh, is a problem in our lives and our minds. So there's the quality of the thing of suffering and evil. But there's also the, the quantity of problem, just how much there is. The kind of ubiquity of suffering and evil, the way it just seems to permeate so much of our experience uh, of, of life in this world. Uh, human life is suffering. Tinged with malevolence, to quote uh, someone, full of tragedy. uh, And tragedy affected, in some instances, not just by cause and effect in a material universe, but by something that we would call evil. By something that is is actually malevolent, that is is bad, that is wrong, that is something that you cannot uh, possibly make peace with. And so I, I think as we approach this question, whether you're coming at it from within the Bible or from outside, or however, however we come to it, it's, a, it's an acute question. And, and we, we look at it and we say, this is something that we need uh, to deal with. Uh, it's a philosophical problem. It's a conundrum to think about the existence of a good God and evil. 
And it's an existential problem. Uh, it's a problem that uh, we face as we try to live our lives in this world and think uh, and work our way through them. Uh, you talked before about personal encounters with suffering. One of the things I'll do uh, later on tonight is go and visit a 31-year-old woman from our congregation who is dying of cancer. And I don't know if 31 sounds young to you, it sounds very young to me. And uh, she is someone that, of all the people that you thought we could do without her, it's not her. Uh, an incredibly good, faithful, Christian doctor living a life that is permeating goodness and she will die soon. And uh, it's a cold heart that looks at that and thinks, oh, it's okay, that's just that's how cancer cells work. There seems something kind of wrong with that. And that's what we're going to try to think about this afternoon. Uh, so I want to do that in, in the time that we've got, which I realise is only about 25 or so minutes. I want, to, I want to approach it, first of all, the philosophical problem, the conundrum of evil, and then the existential problem, and then try to uh, wrap that up. So that's where we're uh, going to go. Let's think about the philosophical problem uh, of evil first. Here is uh, the simplest way I think I can put the problem. The problem is this. God is good, and God is powerful, and evil exists, and the philosophical problem of evil basically says, pick two. The, the philosophical problem is says, of those three things, this is the, the, the first thing, isn't it Christian, looking at the Christian faith, saying to me, I'm Christian, uh, saying, you can't have all three of those. You can have two of them, you can't have three. Do you see how that makes sense? Uh, see, and the further command problem is that we can agree that there's such a thing as evil. Well, can we agree that? There's, the definition of evil, the, the kind of technical definition, is evil is unjustifiable reality. Uh, that means that evil is something that is and ought not be. That that's what philosophers mean by evil. So if, if you think there is anything in the world that has happened and ought not to have happened, uh, then then that's evil. So if we agree, and I agree, that such thing is evil, then I'm down to two and I have to get rid of one of them. Now you can get rid of either one of them and make some headway. So you can say, God is good but not powerful, and evil exists. That works, right? Because if God is good, then he would love the world to be a place without evil. That would be his heart's desire. But he's not very powerful, and, you know, running the universe is a big thing. It's very stressful, and there's lots of prayers coming out all the time, and uh, it's just it's a difficult gear to get off my back. Uh, then you would have evil, because you've got a good God that is just not competent to create a world without evil. Or the flip side would be true as well, wouldn't it? If you had a world where God was all-powerful but not good, our world would be, you know, an example of a world with the very properties of a powerful but not good God. Uh, the problem that Christianity, the problem that the, the Bible creates, is that it's unwilling to let go of any one of those. Uh, the, the philosophical problem is that we want to say there's such a thing as evil, that there's such a thing as unjustifiable reality. Uh, Christians also want to say that God is powerful, that he, that he is competent uh, to make and rule the world, and Christians want to say that God is good, that he is the source of, of all good, and yet evil exists, and that's the philosophical uh, problem of evil for Christians. Does that make sense? Uh, how do we think about that? Uh, the, the way that we think about the philosophical problem of evil, the way uh, Christians uh, have pointed it out, and in fact even uh, secular atheists who are reflecting on the nature of the argument, 
is that the argument holds within it a hidden premise, and the hidden premise is making a bit of mischief uh, with the logic. Uh, the hidden premise, I think, is this, that uh, God is all-powerful and God is all good and evil exists. The hidden premise is that God couldn't have a morally justified reason to allow the existence of evil. The, the, the premise hidden in there is that God couldn't possibly allow, uh, have a morally sufficient reason to allow the existence of evil. Let, let me see if I can come at, at it with you uh, with another topic. Here we go. Uh, Ian and Mary are good people, so they don't go around inflicting suffering. If you ask them, would you like to inflict suffering? They're like, no, we, we, don't, we don't do that. Uh, it, it's also true that all people will suffer, like 100% of people suffer. Uh, and Ian and Mary uh, have the power to not have children, that is, they, they showed up to the year nine, you know, uh, human uh, health sciences class. Um, they got the memo, they know where babies come from and they know how to avoid that outcome, and yet they have children. And, and you see, you look at that, there's something about that that's not going because if these are people that uh, know that 100% of human beings that come into the world suffer, and don't want to cause or create opportunity for suffering, then surely they would not have children, because suffering is a guaranteed result uh, for the mother uh, in the process and for the child but, but the logic of bringing a human being into the world is not that of, let's just take a gamble that this kid doesn't suffer. The logic of bringing the child into the world is to say that there are, there are features of being alive. There are features of, of existence. There are features of, of what it is to be a human being, to, uh, to love and give and create and receive, to experience community, to experience uh, hope and joy, uh, to experience projects and rewards, and uh, you know, to, uh, there are all these things that, that are morally sufficient grounds to say that Ian and Mary are not evil for bringing a child into the world, even though that child will suffer. I think that's the hidden premise in the philosophical problem, and, and I think that that is the kind of technical answer or response to the, the problem of evil, that uh, God could have, and the Bible says does have, morally sufficient grounds for allowing the existence of evil. Now, I want to pull back a bit here and say, I'm not sure that the Christian Bible gives you the definitive answer to why that is. That is, I'm not sure that there's kind of on page 132, point B, section C, that, that it says the morally sufficient ground is this, but if you read the Christian Bible as a whole, the, the story of the Bible moves from, from a creation that is good to a creation that is perfect, from two people to a multitude that no one can count from every tongue and tribe and nation, from monoculturalism to multiculturalism, uh, from human beings who are known by God as their creator to human beings that are known as both created and saved. And there is a process, there is a story in the Bible where you can see that the, the end is different from the beginning, uh, and that the end of the Bible, the end of all things, I mean end in the technical sense, the purpose of all things, is heading toward an end game that is so overwhelming in the goodness that it establishes, uh, that, it, that it makes the existence of evil at least uh, philosophically 
thinkable as something that could be allowed by a good and powerful God. Uh, but that's the way that uh, you can think about the problem of evil. The second thing I want to say, these are the kind of me trying to throw uh, a bit of uh, thinking at the problem of evil, is that God's relationship between good and evil uh, is complex. Uh, so, you know, the Facebook status is married, single, it's complicated. Uh, the relationship of God to human actions is not, you know, he's in them or he's not in them, but it's uh, complicated. That, that is that, that God stands behind the actions and activities of, of the world in a particular uh, way. There is, a, there is a form of Christian answer to the problem of evil that is called the free will defense, which is to say that God so valued free will that he was willing to risk the reality of evil for the sake of uh, human freedom. I don't quite buy that. I'm not sure that the Bible puts the value of human freedom in quite those uh, terms or describes humans being free in quite those ways. But it does in a particular way, which is, which is this, is to say that uh, as human beings, we are free, or I'm cautious of the word free, but that we are responsible, that we... We undertake actions, and we're not puppets or manipulated or lacking freedom in the actions that we do. So exclude the moment when you're forced to it. Someone has a gun to your head and says, can you buy me a copy? And you didn't really want to, but uh, you are under coercion. Think of the, the things that you do non-coercively. Like, I, I want to watch Netflix right now, and I am watching Netflix or, or whatever. Non-coercive action. Uh, the Bible acknowledges that as a thing that you genuinely choose to do, that you are genuinely behind that action. And God's relationship to our action is not simply either he was forcing us or he wasn't forcing us, as if they're the only choice. So the problem for us is kind of almost imaginative as much as philosophical, but we think that any time someone else is calling the shots, that necessarily means that the other person is. So our model for this is kind of a puppet, right? We have uh, puppet on a string, and who's moving the puppet? It's the puppeteer, and is the puppet doing anything? No, it's just doing what the puppeteer says. Uh, according to the Bible, I think intuitively in our experience, it's not like that. The, the things that we do, and the things that we choose to do, we genuinely choose to do, and at the same time, the good and powerful God is working his purposes. So I've kind of spoiled the punchline by having it already up there. This is a story from the Old Testament, uh, from the story of Joseph, uh, a name that might be uh, familiar. A whole lot of stuff goes down with Joseph's life. He gets uh, thrown into a pit. They try to kill him. They sell him into slavery. He ends up falsely accused and imprisoned from Egypt. And then he rises to the um, to the top of the Egyptian administration, Jewish Jewish boy. And when he has a confrontation with his brothers who tried to kill him, uh, this is what he says: that what you intended for evil, God intended for good, the saving of many lives. Do you see how we're at the, this complicated space? Because he doesn't say to them, you know how you tried to kill me? No, no harm, no foul. That was just God manipulating you. Did, did you notice that at that point when you pushed me, you didn't feel like it? And No, he, he says, no, you intended for evil. You were doing an actual evil thing. But through that action, God was actually intending a good and working out his good uh, results. The place where this kind of comes front and centre in the Christian faith is in the death of Jesus. The death of Jesus, as you know, you've seen that on cross of the crucifixes and so on, Jesus was crucified. And that was really bad. Like, so bad, in fact, that I think if you were there, 
you ought to have tried to stop it. Because it was unjust, it was wrong, and it should not have you should have tried to stop the death of Jesus, because you should always stand in the way of injustice and encounters with your power. And yet, at the same time, what people did to Jesus freely and by their own decision, God was using to bring about what Christians would say is the greatest good possible, the saving uh, of the human race, forgiveness of sins, a new hope, and so on. And both of those things were a play in the death of Jesus, human evil and God's purposes for good. Third thing I want to say about the problem of evil, and then we hit the dying uh, stroke. First thing, the third thing to say about the problem of evil is that as you think about the problem of evil, it's worth considering the alternatives. Because I freely acknowledge right now, I don't think I have a complete answer from a Christian perspective as to why God allowed evil in the first place. I certainly don't have an answer to any particular instance of evil you've ever experienced. I'm just not given access uh, to God's purposes in allowing any particular instance of suffering. When I go visit Sarah this afternoon uh, or tonight, I, I won't be saying, oh, I can see that this led to this and this led to that. We don't have it. But the problem with evil, I do want to say, is not just a problem for Christians, it's a problem for all of us. So you have to choose not to have the problem or not, but which problem you're willing to live with and which tensions uh, you're willing to come to terms with. Let me give you some of the alternatives that are available to you. Uh, firstly, Buddhism, the uh, Buddhist system of belief, says that suffering and evil are an illusion. So the Buddhist account is to say that suffering uh, comes from... Suffering is an illusion caused by desire. So this is very... Uh, makes no sense, it's a very great feeling. So, uh, Buddhism says you, you stub your toe and you suffer, but you don't suffer because you stub your toe, you suffer because in stubbing your toe, you don't want to stub, stub your toe. You don't want to feel pain, and you feel pain. So, the problem is actually desire, and so the, the, the salvation or, or liberation is to is to lose desire, is to become the person that says, I, I have no opinion on the stubbing or not of topics. I just, I haven't got a dog in this fight, I don't have any opinion on this, I just, I am, am, I am liberated from the illusion that we're all participating that there's such a thing as suffering, because I liberate myself from the desire for things to be other than they are. So that's the Buddhist solution from, of Suffering is that it's an illusion, or, or Hinduism, from which Buddhism was a rebellion and from which it uh, sprang. Hinduism says that suffering is another kind of illusion because, it, because what, what looks like suffering is in fact a kind of justice. That you, you know, you see, uh, you see the, you know, the person on the side of the street, deformed or whatever, and, uh, and, and struggling, and your, your intuition is to think that something's wrong. And Hinduism gives you the insight to say, actually, it looks wrong, but actually there's, a, there's karma here. There's something happening to this person that actually, if you, if you pull back the wide angle lens, if you understood it more deeply and more profoundly, what you're seeing here is, is cause and effect in a kind of moral universe. You're, you're seeing someone who is receiving in themselves uh, things that would deserve from the previous life. There are a couple of religious options. The last one I want to give you uh, is a secular option. Uh, this comes from Richard Dawkins. So this is uh, Richard Dawkins and uh, him thinking about uh, suffering from a secular and atheistic point of view. 
Richard says this, the total amount of suffering per year in the natural world is beyond all decent contemplation. During the minute it takes me to compose this sentence, thousands of animals are being eaten alive, many others are running for their lives, whimpering with fear, others are slowly being devoured from within by rasping parasites, thousands of all kinds are dying of starvation, thirst and disease. It must be so. If there ever is a time of plenty, the very fact will automatically lead to an increase in population until the natural state of starvation and misery is restored. In a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt and others are going to get lucky and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom... No design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. I really like Richard Dawkins. I think he's a great writer, I think he's a great thinker. I've learned a whole ton about science from reading him. I love his consistency. That he's thought this through. That he's thought through the truth and the challenge and the realities of the options that are available to you if there is no God, if options one and two aren't real. And he says, which is kind of obviously true, that section three can't also be true, that there can't be in any ultimate sense the existence of evil. Because in a sheer kind of closed materialistic universe, there are a whole lot of things that are, but who gets to say that anything that is ought not to be? What, what does ought not mean in a material universe? And, and, and so Richard Dawkins understands the consequences of that worldview that in the end there is no evil. Now let me just pause for a moment and uh, you absolutely underline the fact that that is not how Richard Dawkins lives his life. Uh, Richard White is one of the great things about Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and that whole basically this is how profoundly moral they are, how that they have they have a moral compass, they have a crusade that doesn't exactly uh, line up with the way Christians think about morality, but they are serious about the commitments that they hold. Richard Dawkins doesn't walk past beggars on the street and he's just blind, pitiless indifference. And when he reflects on this, he says because uh, in many ways human Ethics are about rejecting what we know about the the biological world and imposing something else on it. Uh, That is, I think, uh, that he accepts the irrationality of our kindnesses to each other and lives them out. But in terms of the philosophical question, is there such a thing as evil? Richard Dawkins says, no, it's not really a thing. There's a kind of couple of responses that we can maybe talk about in question time to the, to the philosophical uh, problem of evil, to this kind of uh, this claim that a good, an all-powerful, all-good God of evil is that you can't have those two. Here's a few uh, ways to shine some light into that. And here's the, the second and last thing I want to say that, that the Bible almost never addresses it the way I just did. Uh, almost everything I said, I think it's true, I, I stand behind it, but it is. It from a kind of philosophy 101 course to think about the conundrum. And the Bible almost never addresses it in those terms, I think, because the Bible is addressed to us not as philosophy 101 students, but as humans trying to live in this world. And so the Bible's way of asking the question is not, 
uh, you know, God is good, God is uh, powerful, evil exists, write a 2,000 word essay in response to that. The Bible's question is almost always, how long, O Lord? The characteristic response to the Bible is, how long, O Lord? Because the Bible takes that this conviction that there is a good God and a powerful God and there's an evil, and it says, yes, 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 all those three things are true. And if they're true, then they can't go on forever. If it's true that there's a good God, if it's true that there's a powerful God, and it's true that evil exists, evil has to go. God has to do something about that. And the Bible is chock full of the cries of people out to God saying, how long, O Lord, before you intervene? How long before you put to an end uh, sin and death and suffering and evil? Uh, it's one of the things that I... I uh, one of the ways I responded to you, I mean, a couple of years ago, you probably heard uh, Stephen Fry in that interview. Do you know this interview where Stephen Fry is interviewed by, a, I think it's a religious uh, journalist, and he says, if you're wrong, Stephen, Stephen Fry's an atheist, he says, if you're wrong and you meet God, you live your life. And uh, you're kind of surprised, because I didn't expect to see you. He says, Stephen, to Stephen Fry, what would you say when you met God? And Stephen Fry pauses and straight away says, Of the coming harvest. 
The spring has begun. Something new has begun. Something, something is happening that's reversing the apparent decline of winter and this fruit has appeared on the tree, which means there's more to come. And that's what the Bible says the resurrection of Jesus is. Like if you know the story of Narnia, Lionel, which is a wardrobe where Aslan comes alive from the stone table and he starts running through Narnia. And there's still snow everywhere because it's been winter and never Christmas for a long time, but everywhere he goes, the winter's giving way to spring and there's flowers popping up and there's frozen statues are being unfrozen and everything that the wicked witch has done is becoming undone. And the Bible says that that has begun to happen to sin and death and evil, the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so Christianity has a hopeful, good news message that in response to the problem of evil, God has done something in Jesus that has made a material difference to our world. Now, I want to, to nearly end there, but I want to end uh, on a slightly more confrontational uh, thing. That, well, one of the well, things I worry about with the, the question of the problem of evil is not uh, just that we think philosophically rather than compassionately about evil, but that we're tempted to think that evil is a problem that is out there uh, that someone else does and someone else needs to deal with. So I don't want to end uh, with this quote. So it's given the great uh, Russian uh, author and philosopher. He says of evil, if only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? So my last and slightly confrontational thing that I want to say is that, friends, we're we're going to ask this question. We've got to recognise ourselves as in it, as part of it, to to reflect on our own situation, our own hearts, our own inclinations, because the the problem of evil, if we're going to be serious about addressing it, we have to be serious about what is within us. Thank you very much for your attention. I think we've got time for questions. Thanks, Rory. I don't have the mic on. Um, so, yeah, we're going into a time of question and answer. If anyone's got any questions... And answer. I might give you 30 seconds to a minute to talk to the person next to you. If you don't know them, introduce yourself. Um, and then, yeah, if anything was confusing or, yeah, just have a quick chat. See if you've got any questions.
Maybe raise your hand so we can. Yeah, I, 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 uh, very hesitantly, like 
with people who hold those views. So I hope I haven't put some misspeaking that, that I didn't uh, always reluctant to account for other people's um, views. But in this case, I've tried to sympathetically understand those. So I think in, um, uh, say, for example, in New Atheism, you would uh, uh, Richard, Richard Dawkins and that, that, uh, that way of thinking would just say that he would have used the word evil in a casual, non-philosophical sense, that there's such a thing as wrong. Uh, I think in, uh, in Richard Dawkins' case, certainly in Richard Hitchens' case, their account of good and bad and, and right and wrong is uh, utilitarian, which is to say what does cause the maximum good for the maximum number, what, what causes the maximum happiness, uh, which is a, uh, you know, that's a coherent account. I think it's a, I, I don't, don't buy it. Um, I think it does, it, it's a, uh, you're using evil with a lowercase e, and if you could imagine a situation where the torture of one one child led to the happiness of a massive multitude, it's hard to see how the utilitarian account would say that was okay. Because uh, utilitarianism doesn't look at an object and say, what is it? It looks at an object and say, what, what, what could we possibly do? So, yeah, so, you know, that's, I think, that's, for example, that's how. Um, and then in the biological sphere, uh, Richard Dawkins would say there's no there's no use as a materialist speculating on what universe there could be because this is the universe that is, and in this universe it so happens that uh, parasites, uh, you know, even the beauty of a rainforest is caused by the competition between various things. You know those lovely vines that are going around the trees? They're trying to kill the trees. They're, they're, they're going up there to try to get to the sunlight and so on, and he'd he just say, get over it, that's just that's the world that we Journalist, he would go to India and to, uh, he's the one that 
uh, let the Lord know about Mother's Razor, who was anonymous before he, he found it. Um, he said that in all his travels, he never saw a socialist leper colony. Um, but everywhere where there was suffering, there was some weird bunch of Christians who were gathered around trying to, trying to, trying to fix it up. And that's what led to his conversion, because Christianity does have that, uh, that hostile relationship with evil, where you don't uh, let, let still be had to alleviate Reason I don't murder you afterwards is because 
Could be A, because that, of course, is a lot of unhappiness for the people that love you. Um, it could be because God told me to, like I would love to, but uh, um, God says no. Or because you, you are, in fact, an image bearer of God, and, it would, and you are, in fact, ordered to life and flourishing, and my service of you is to allow you to be fully the things you are. So in that sense, I think Christianity would say that there is such a thing as objective good. It's, it's, in, it's in the order and purpose of the way things are. We've got a slide there, don't we? Thank you. Thank you. Yes, so...